awesome. Good job, huh? Right. Good morning. How are you today? Um, so, you know, we're in this series called Blind Faith, and today we're going to talk about new glasses. Now, in the year 2000, well, when I grew up, about the third grade, I had to start wearing glasses. And by the time I was in the fifth or sixth or seventh grade, I was wearing Coke bottle thick glasses. So I was that little guy who got good grades and wore thick glasses that Scotty used to p make fun of all the time <laughs> when I was in school. And um, when, I when I was 35, I went and got LASIK surgery. So I went from 2400 vision <coughs> to 2015 vision in a half-hour procedure. It was the best $2,000 I spent in my entire life. Completely transformed the way I saw things, literally. It was the first time in my life that I realized that brake lights have a lens, and you can see the pattern. And I'd be driving down the road and, and be like, well, what road are we looking for? Well, Center Street. I'm like, okay, um, one, two, three, four, five. It's the seventh one. I could read the sign, right? And it was the first time I really saw life clearly, right? I realized that leaves had veins, you know, for, and you could see them in the tree. You didn't have to look at them like this. And um, it was an amazing change. Now, spiritual vision is not quite that easy to change, right? Being able to see clearly what the, what the way that God or Jesus would have us to see. So at this point in Matthew, we're up to Matthew chapter 22. We have three questions that have been put to Jesus by different groups. And on the surface, these just kind of seem like, you know, jealousy, envy, right? They just want, they're just trying to trap him. And Ma Matthew says exactly that. He says, these guys came and they were trying to trick or trap Jesus. And the conflict that he's having with the Jewish leaders is beginning to come to a head at this point. Things are kind of heating up. But from what we think we know about the way the Gospels were written, it's safe to say that this was all part of a larger conversation. That these guys, that these aren't the only questions that were being asked of him that day by these different groups. They were probably several different questions. And Matthew chooses these for a reason. So it stands, that begs the question, why these? I would maintain that all three of these questions are chosen because they have profound implications for how we see ourselves and how we see life, how we think about things. They go right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and what it means literally to be a human. Once you start to see these questions, you can't unsee them because you see them everywhere in the Bible as we start to explore these. We'll try to move quickly through all three, make a few comments about each one, and then we'll move on. Deal? Before we get started, I have a question for you. 
Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be a human being? What, what does that mean? Why are we here? Why were we created? What, 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 what is this all about? And um, another question kind of related to that is, have you ever wondered, is it worth it? Well, with all this running around I do, all these things I do when I'm a human, is, is it worth it? And um, one of our modern American poets has asked this question. He said, I tried so hard and I got so far, but in the end, doesn't even matter. I had to fall to lose it all, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. From the song, In the End, by Linkin Park. Some of you recognize that. It's an awesome song. 3,000 years ago, another famous poet said something really similar. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, King Solomon says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, I wonder if Chester Bennington and the boys realized that they were channeling old King Solomon in their song in the end. So we come up to encounter number one. Now, I used to be, if anybody who's known me for very long knows this, something of a political junkie. I could tell you every president and when they were elected, most of their vice presidents and usually who they ran against. I could tell you what the issues were of the day, both today and in history. I could tell you every cabinet member. I could tell you all nine Supreme Court justices. Most governors, most senators, and most of the, the um, chairs of each of the major committees in Congress. I knew all the issues backwards and forwards, and I had a very firm stance on them. As far as I'm concerned, there were two political parties, the evil party and the stupid party. <laughs> you get to decide which one's which. And, you know, on some level, most of us have some passing interest in government and politics. Sure, we care about the issues of the day, and we should. I mean, that's kind of what America is based on. As a representative republic, it's important to have an informed citizenry that has a voice in the issues, right? There's some, some interest some, on some level. And really, in any government, any place that you live, any society, the relationship between the individual and the governing authorities is important. And so you care about that, th those things. And that's been the way it is all through history. And in Jesus' time, it was no different. In Jesus' time, of course, the Romans had conquered this area and were in control of it. They controlled most of the known world. And so the question was asked on a regular basis, how do we interact with these guys? How do we interact with this, this government? There were also very many parties at the time both political and religious parties. And they were often at odds. And so there's two groups in particular that we get introduced to here. One is the Herodians. Now the Herodians, named, taken from King Herod, who was the king of the Jews, 
they were the political insiders. They loved Rome because Rome was where they got their power. And they had traded, some would say traded their soul for power. The other party was the Pharisees. Now these guys were the self-appointed religious guardians, and they despised Rome. So it's interesting that these two groups team up to ask this first question of Jesus. Because Jesus has just told three parables against the Pharisees. So he says in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Remember, these guys don't get along. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're laying, laying it on kind of thick, aren't they? We, we know already from their interaction with him that they don't think this highly of him. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Good question, right? If Rome is the enemy, and the Rome is obviously an enemy of God, is it, is it okay to support Rome? What do you think? And kind of related to this is, you know, whose side are you on? Are you on Rome's side or the side of Israel? And if you claim to speak for God the way you do, then we want to know whose side you think God's on. But as we said, it's a trap. Because they know that if he says no, it's not okay, then the Herodians can report him to Rome and he's in trouble with the Romans. And if he says yes, then the Pharisees can go out and tell the people and, and erode his public support. So which one does he answer? He says, you guys need some new glasses. Now, what he really says is, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Basically, Jesus is saying, listen, it would be great if you really cared. I would love it if you cared about the answer, but you're not. You don't. You're just hypocrites. But guess what? I'm going to answer it anyway. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and asked him, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscriptions? Who's on the coin? They said, well, Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and what is God is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So Jesus is telling them, listen, your, your vision is too small. You, you, need, you need a new prescription. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking this is about just about paying taxes. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not on anybody's side. God's not on anybody's side. The kingdom is so much bigger than who's in charge. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than Rome, so much bigger than the emperor. Okay, you're living under the imperial system right now. Pay the tax. 
Don't worry about it. Give your allegiance to God. Pay your tax. And this is the perspective, the, the perspective he provides, you see all through the New Testament and retrospectively in the Old Testament. And like I said before, once you start seeing this, you see it everywhere. The principle here that he's show, teaching them is what has been called a passive subversion or a subversive compliance. It's an attitude that says to authority, on the one hand, I have no allegiance to you. My allegiance is to Jesus. God is my king. But on the other hand, you can count on me to be a good citizen, to always pay my taxes, to follow the law, and to be somebody that's, 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 that you can count on. That's a fine line to walk. That's sometimes a difficult line to walk. Jeremiah had something to say about this. 600 years ago, the Babylonians were brought by God to, to punish Israel. And so they have invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. And many Israelites found themselves back in Babylon in captivity. So here the enemy has come in, come in destroyed your city, taken you captive, and taken you back to their home. And so what does Jeremiah say to them? He says, also, he's writing a letter to them telling the captives how they should act. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, by its nature, Christianity is counterculture. What the Romans found when they, when they encountered the Christians, they kind of didn't know what to do with them. Because on the one hand, they wouldn't, give, they wouldn't worship the, the Roman emperor like they were supposed to, but on the other hand, they were always good citizens. And in fact, you find over and over again the Apostle Paul, as he encounters these guys, these authorities, demanding that they be good Romans. When he was strapped down to be flogged with no, no trial, he said, is it right for you to flog a Roman citizen? I, I want you to act like a good Roman. A, Roman. a good Roman wouldn't act like you're acting right now. And when he was in jail, and, one of, and whoever was in charge at the time wanted him to pay a bribe, Paul wouldn't do it. He said, I'll stay in jail. I'm not going to pay you a bribe. We, we Romans don't, don't give and accept bribes. It's not what we do. Uphold a higher standard. You've jailed me for no good reason. I'm not going to bribe you so I can get out. It was, it, they always demanded that the Romans be the best Romans they could be, regardless of their view of, of, of the God of Israel, of, regardless of their view of Jesus. This has been called also the ethic of the exile. And so for the New Testament writers, it was almost a, a constant thing that they referred to themselves as exiles. That they were, in a sense, in captivity. That they lived their lives in such a way that their allegiance was to God, but while they were here living in this world, they were going to give respect to authority. 
Uh, here's an example. In 1 Peter 2.17, he says, very straightforward, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, that seems fairly straightforward, but, you know, our, that begs the question, well, Jesus, what, what do we do when the emperor, when whoever's in charge is not worthy of my respect and honor? How do I act? Well, Jesus knows something about that. The emperor at the time was Tiberius. And if the rumors are true, um, Tiberius by now had descended into a, a paranoid state of semi-madness. There are also accounts that of his obsession with lurid sex parties and child molestation and murder. And if the children that were brought to him didn't please him, he would throw them off the cliff into the ocean. It was a horrid time, and the man was a horrid man. Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You honor the emperor, even if he's not honorable. It's not up to you. So that <coughs> begs a question for us today. When you think about your place in the world, it provides some food for thought, doesn't it? In your conversation, when you go to work, if the people in authority, whether it be the president or whoever the president is, the president of your company, your boss, it makes... Jesus would say it makes no difference how they act. If you're a Christian, it makes a difference how you act. You are, it's on you to show them the honor and respect that their position demands. That you show your allegiance to God first and to them as, their, as God's appointed authority. It's a, that's a tough road. The call of Jesus is not to withdraw or avoid or, re or rebel against an evil world, but to engage it. To, to demand that it be the best it can be, but also to practice submission and humility. Whether you're a Christian or not, you've got to ask this question, or answer this question. Wouldn't the world be just a little bit better place if we all could learn to be more respectful of authority? Jesus says to his questioners, you can do both. You can live under Rome or wherever, be a good citizen, and have your ultimate allegiance be to God. You don't have to choose. <clears throat> so then we come up to the next encounter. <clears throat> now, I happen to have lots of experience being married. I've been married 52 years, when you add all of them up together. <laughs> and so, <laughs> that would be my wife and I added up together, 52 years. And you'd think by now we'd be really good at it, right? With all that experience being married. And for all of us, right, marriage and family consume an enormous amount of our time and energy. <clears throat> and for some people, it consumes all of it. And even for some people who are single, marriage and family consumes all their attention. They want to be married so badly. Now, during uh, Jesus' ministry, he was constantly talking about 
eternal life, and the resurrection. And this was a little puzzling for some people. And later on, even in the early church, people were still puzzled about it. And so Paul describes it this way. Here's an example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Nice. But there was one group within Judaism that um, wasn't buying that. And these guys are called the Sadducees. Now, the way to remember them, as Pastor Nate pointed out a few weeks ago, was that they didn't believe in the afterlife or the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. These were the guys with the money. Most of them were... um, very wealthy. They're, most of them were priests or of the priestly families. And they considered wealth and status as a sign of a blessing from God. If this is all there is in this world, if you have no afterlife, then all the blessings that God is going to give you will be now. So marriage and family were vitally important because it really mattered, A, which, did you marry into a good family? Who are you marrying? Are you marrying a good family that is also wealthy? Or that, you know, is that a sign of respect? And that's a sign of a blessing from God? So you've got to marry into a good family. Or B, your children have to marry into good families. And, you know, what you're going to leave your kids is important. And how your, your family's money is going to be distributed is important. And all those things matter because this is all you get. This life is all you get. So in, we go to verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Now, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Pretty straightforward part of the the Old Testament law. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, you can imagine this next question with a bit of sarcasm. Now then, at this resurrection you're always talking about, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? How are you going to sort out who she belongs to, Jesus? Belongs to. Think about that for a minute. Jesus replied, You are an heir because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. Now, he just, I don't want you to miss that. He just told a bunch of religious leaders and people from the from the priestly families, that they don't know their Bible. You don't know your Bible, and you don't know the power of God. You don't, just don't get it. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, remember what he said about, what I said about who will we, how will we sort out who they belong, who she belongs to, right? That's why 
he phrases it like this. They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. You don't belong to anybody. At the resurrection, we're not going to be worried about that. Now, we can't be entirely sure what he means by this. Certainly, he's not saying that we will be angels. You don't die and become an angel. That's not how it works. The context is marriage. So in some way, shape, or form, when it comes to male-female relationships, our new reality post-resurrection will bear some resemblance to what the angels experience now. One possible way to understand this is to think about the way you were in your, in your mother's womb. When you were being formed in your mother's womb, your lungs were sucking in and expelling fluid. And you're, you got oxygen from an umbilical cord. And then this crazy event happened. You were pushed out into air. All the, the fluid in your lungs was expelled, and your lungs had to learn how to process oxygen and breathe air. So one organ, your lungs, took on a whole new unexpected and could not have been guessed function, and you didn't need an umbilical cord anymore. They just cut it off and threw it away. And so in some way, Jesus is saying this is a similar thing that will happen at the resurrection. That somehow or another, the intimacy we experience now through our physical union with our wives or with our husbands, with our spouses, will be transformed in a, a fundamental way such that whatever we experience now in marriage is no longer required. We will no longer need to have the physical union in order to have that intimacy. That somehow or another, that transformation will take place. And that's what he means by, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand that in the resurrection, we'll be, you'll be transformed. Paul discusses this later. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. If you took a kernel of corn and looked at it, nothing would tell you that that would turn into a corn plant. It doesn't look anything like a corn plant. It's not a little miniature corn plant. You put it in the ground, it becomes a corn plant and then produces more corn. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. And so that's the idea, right? That when we die, or when we are transformed at the resurrection, that our body as it is now will not be the same as our body as it is then. We'll be recognizable, we'll be transformed, we'll be glorified. But not all the functions will be the same. And we can't even guess what that's going to be like. It's beyond our ability to imagine it. And then Jesus says, but about the resurrection of the dead. You guys don't believe in the resurrection. Have you not read, here's this part about, you don't understand your Bible. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. All people that are now dead, as far as you're concerned. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Is your vision so small that you cannot see that? When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 
Now, I want to tread a little bit carefully on what I'm about to say, and I want you to hear me very well. Um, Obviously, Jesus and the Bible have a very high view of marriage. In fact, when God saw that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, he said he was going to make a helper. Now, the Hebrew word for helper is azer, and it contains the idea of savior. In fact, the only other times that the Hebrew word azer is used in the Bible, it talks about God. When you see in the Psalms and places like that, God will be my helper, he'll be my azer, he'll be my savior. And so if Eve is the one azer, and then God is the other azer in the Bible. And the idea is that it's someone who can do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And when God saw that Adam was alone, he said, I need to give him an azer. Somebody who can do for him what he cannot do for himself. It's your helper to save you from yourself. And so men, that's what your wife is. She's your salvation. Now having said that, it's also apparent that for Jesus and for the New Testament writers, the state of marriage is not the highest calling. Let me show you an example. This is Paul again. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how can she please her husband? I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may have a life, they live They live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now understand this is advice from Paul, but he's not commanding this. But he's saying, look, I want you to learn how to devote yourself wholly to God. Getting married is a good thing, but don't worry about that. Focus your energies on your relationship with God. I think we could all agree that if we would all, whether we're single or married, focus more energy on a relationship with God that other relationships will fall in place. And that's really what they're getting at here, right? And that's what Paul, even Jesus is trying to get us to see. That marriage is not the goal, guys. The relationship with God is the goal. Focus on that. Focus, get your eyes clear and see the world for what it is, that this is temporary, There's an eternal focus. Yeah, get married, have a family, love your wife, but focus on your relationship with God. Finally, the last encounter. Now, when I coach, each week I pass on some simple sayings to my my kids. So when I coach basketball, it's dribble with your eyes up. Hustle beats skill. Follow your shot. And then I you try to do some kind of application for life with that. And we all do that in some, at some level, right? We, 
we, we have these little rules for ourselves, these little ought-tos for us and for our family, right? And that's sometimes how our impression of the Bible, that it's a divine rule book, that it just lists a bunch of things that you're supposed to do, a bunch of ought-tos. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible cover to cover, you've encountered that, a bunch of rules. You get pretty good through Genesis and Exodus, and all of a sudden you get to the middle of Exodus, and you bog down into a bunch of laws. You slog your way through that, and then you get to Leviticus, and it starts up again. And you're like, my goodness, when is this ever going to end? And they're very confusing, and they're very hard to understand. And one of our problems with the way we approach the law, because we look at these and we say, well, am I supposed to do all these? And one of our problems is that we tend to look at law the way we look at statutory law or the law that a country has, right? A legislative body will make a law, and the only way that law changes is if that legislative body gets back together again and makes a new law. But that's not the way the law, it's not the way, not the way ancient law codes worked, and it's not the way the law in the Old Testament works. Because the law in the Old Testament was a covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel. And it was written, or it was, it was given at a time that was very specific for a very specific purpose. And so most of the law, or a lot of the law, has to do with the building of the tabernacle, which is a tent that was used for worship, and for their camp life, because at the time they were camping. Well, later, when they lived in cities and towns, or built a temple, a lot of those laws were no longer in effect. They didn't make any sense. They, they, were, they were obsolete, because they weren't living that way anymore. So what they had to do was figure out ways, because they knew they had this law, so what, how do I take these laws that were written for that time period and convert them into my time period and my situation? And that's what they would do. So they would get together, and they would do one of two things. Either they would look at a law and they would say, okay, how do I, how do I find different situations where this law applies? So they looked at the Sabbath, and they said, okay, I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath and not work. Well, then, what's work? And they would come up with a list of things that were work and things that weren't work and things that were okay to do on the Sabbath and things that weren't okay to do on the Sabbath. And, you know, that's good. That's a good exercise, right? That makes sense. i gotta, I got to figure out what's work if I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so they would do this, and they would go through these exercises. And the problem that they usually had was they would come up with these lists of things that were work and things that weren't work. Then they would point themselves to the guardians over that and then tell the other people that they had to do the same thing. Now... No, Jesus would say, no, it's okay that you did that, but you can't take that and force somebody else to do it. That's your opinion. You can't make your opinion, give your opinion the force of law. Then the other thing that they would do is they would try to take all these laws and they would try to boil them down into certain specific statements. They would try to simplify the whole thing to say what is behind all these laws. And here's an example from the, from the book of Micah, from the prophet Micah. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Straightforward. You want to figure out what all the law is about, that's it, according to Micah. Right? That's a pretty good summary of what God would expect. Or old King Solomon, we'll go back to him. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden, hidden thing, whether good or evil. Be a good kid. 
So, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So there we got the, back to the Pharisees, right? The self-appointed religious defenders. One of them, an expert in the law. So this is one of those guys who would go around doing, going through these exercises, right? He tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Excellent question. They ask themselves this all the time. But of course, they're trying to trick him. So Jesus' answer is brilliant. He says, are those your old glasses? No, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you want to understand the law, right, when you're reading the law and you're looking at all these different laws, some of them are going to be troubling. Puzzle, some of them you won't figure out. But if you're trying to figure out what this law means, that's it. The love God and love, your, love people hang all those laws hang on that. They all have their base behind that. And if you can't figure one out, you can't figure it out. Leave it. That, nobody else can figure it out either. You, you can read commentary after commentary of people trying to figure these things out. Love God, love people. That's what it comes down to. Because you can never go wrong if you're constantly asking yourself in every situation, what does love require of me? If you or a group or a family is constantly asking that question and acting on it, you don't need a lot of laws. I mean, imagine a world where you did that every day. You just love God and love the people around you. Well, imagine if everybody at your work did that. Would it be a better place to work? If everybody just Love God and love the people around them. Looked out for each other. We're running out of time. I'm going to skip fast through this last little bit. While they were still together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, Well, he's the son of David. He said, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? How can the Son call the Father Lord? Because he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus is saying, you know, your, your view of the anointed one, your view of the Messiah is just too small. You need a new prescription. You need to go get some LASIK. Because you just, you're not seeing it. So who is David's Lord? He is the human one who is worthy of worship. He's right in front of you, but you're too blind to see it. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So way back when they had asked him a chapter or two ago, what's your authority? What's your authority for doing the things you're doing? My authority is 
the one of the Christ whose vision you are too small. The vision of whom you are is, is too small for you. You guys are so worried about, you're so wrapped up in, you know, oh, you can't believe in the resurrection because we don't know who the wife will belong to. Really? And, and would you, we'd be paying taxes to Caesar or not? Really? That's your concern? That's the stuff you're worried about? We're talking about the kingdom of God here, people. We're talking about an eternal vision. We're talking about an eternal kingdom. It's been coming. It's been prophesied. It's been told to you over and over and over again. And here you're worried about these small things. Um, you know, big picture, right? What does it mean to be human? God has designed humanity to run his creation. Are you aware of that? That we were created to be in charge. To have authority over creation. To rule. And the question is, how will you do that? How will you run, how will you rule your little bit of creation? Whether that be your body and the people around you. And will you run around being concerned about the small things? Or will you concentrate on the bigger things? And as a believer, you're faced with some serious questions. Why am I here and what is my purpose? What does it mean to be a human who is also a follower of Jesus? So the first thing, to whom do I give my allegiance? And how do I interact with authority? That's an important question. That's a the question that we have to address every single day. How do I interact with those in charge? And what's my ultimate destiny? Is this life all there is? Should I be pouring my time and energy into this life? Or should I be pouring my time and energy into the next life? Remember what Jesus said about Seek first the kingdom of God. And what does God expect of me? What is the most important thing for me to do? What's my guiding principles? What's my most important thing? You know, when I'm playing basketball, I ask, ask, I ask my girls, what, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Dribble with your eyes up. Dribble with your eyes up. Dribble with your eyes up. Why is that so important? So you can see the whole court. So you can see the open man. You can see the defender coming. Right? What's, a, what's what, at this very kernel, at its very root, what is the most important thing for me to know? And these guys came and asked Jesus that, and he said, it's easy. Love God and love people, no matter who they are, whether they're lovable or not. Love the unlovely and the unlovable, because that's the heart of the matter. That's what I came to do. And I've been trying to show you that. And so when you see that, whoever it is over there, whether it be in Jesus' time, it was the leper with a horrible disease. And he went over and he touched them. And he took time for them. So you've got to ask yourself, am I doing that? Am I taking the time necessary? We're going to end there. And I just ask you to really think about these things as you bow your head. And really consider these questions, right? Is my vision too small? Or am I keeping my head up? Am I keeping my eyes up? And watching the court? 
So pray with me now. Father, we um, come before you today humbled by Jesus' words spoken to us that we are to, it just seems so simple, but so hard to do, to, to love God and love people around us. And Father, I, I confess that I fall far short of that very, every single day. And I just ask for your strength to, to do that, to really do what love requires of me and to really internalize your vision of the hope of the future and to show the proper respect for those in authority and not undermine what they're trying to accomplish because we know that they're your children and you love them the same as you love us. Father, all these things are challenging, hard to understand, and we fall so, sh fall so short so often, but we ask for your blessing, and we thank you for your forgiveness because we know that no matter how, fall, how far short we fall, that your son's sacrifice made all the difference, and we can live with confidence that your forgiveness is there and your strength is there to carry us through. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.